I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Hebrews 2, verse 5. We're going to finish up the second chapter of Hebrews this morning. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you that the recipients of this letter were beleaguered, discouraged Christians who were ready to give up their faith. The writer is encouraging them by pointing them to Jesus and reminding them of the greatness of his person and his work. And I want you to remember that yourselves when you get discouraged when you are beleaguered, when you feel like giving up the faith, the thing to do is to look at Jesus, his person, and his work. I've had people who were struggling with discouragement and depression. And our, our first uh, instinct when we are feeling those things is to withdraw. And uh, I've had people who stopped going to church because they just were too depressed to get up and come. And I was like, don't do that, <laughs> please. You need to be with other believers during those times. You need to come and hear about Jesus and be encouraged in your spirit. And I know it's a difficult thing to do when you're struggling with depression, but keep telling yourself that, that you need to hear about Jesus when you're discouraged and depressed and beleaguered and feel like giving up. Now, in chapter 1, we considered Jesus' exalted person. He is described in chapter 1 as the heir of all things, the one through whom the world was created, uh, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We, we, we went to the heights last week of the glory of Christ as the writer of Hebrews pointed us to him. And he told us of the eternal nature of his kingdom, of his everlasting kingdom. But here in chapter 2, we're turning our attention to his work. So we're coming down off the heights a bit and getting down into what uh, our confession or our catechism talks about as the humiliation of Christ, how he suffered and he died. And look at that and see the love of Christ on display before us. Well, let's turn our attention now to Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now, he's referring to the previous verses where he's been talking about the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God uh, that's coming. And he's been waxing poetic about the glories of that kingdom in the previous verses. And he turns our attention at this point in verse 6 to Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now he comments on that little section from Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. 
But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now in Greek and Roman mythology, the gods like Zeus or Jupiter, depending on whether you're looking at Greek or Roman mythology, they lived up on Mount Olympus, and they only came down when they were bored. <clears throat> and if you have ever studied uh, Roman or Greek mythology, <clears throat> you will know that nothing good ever happened when the gods came down to earth. Trouble always arose. Well, Jesus is the true God, as we've been studying, and he is different from all these imaginary gods Yes, he is crowned with glory and honor. He is high and exalted, but he is not aloof. He, came, he became flesh and dwelt among us, coming down to earth for the good of mankind. When he came down, something wonderful happened. He secured salvation for sinners such as we are. Now, the world's religions are happy to tell you what you need to do in order to get to heaven or paradise or nirvana or to achieve enlightenment or self-actualization or whatever the perceived good goal is in those religions. They'll tell you what you need to do. But Christianity tells us what Christ came and did for our salvation. And that's the theme of the verses here in chapter 2. And I want us to break down the argument that he is making here. And we can sum it up in three points. <clears throat> what we were supposed to see happen in the world, and it didn't happen. And then what we don't see, the predicament in which we find ourselves now, and really would have been uh, of pertinence to the people in the day that this letter was written because they were hearing about the glory of Jesus, but their perception of it and their experience of it, like maybe our experience of it, is not all glorious. It's difficult. And they were going through a very difficult time, so they were not seeing something 
And then finally, what we need to see. We need to see what Jesus has done about the predicament in which we find ourselves. Well, first of all, what we were supposed to see... Now, at the beginning of the text, as we have noted, the writer quotes from part of Psalm 8, which we read as our call to worship this morning. The psalmist was looking back at creation. You know, he must have been outside somewhere, and he was looking at the stars, and, you know, he's staring at the universe. Sarah and I went to the Grand Canyon last year, and, you know, you see pictures of it, and it's, it's neat to see the pictures, but when you're there, you're like, you, I think everybody that must look at the Grand Canyon goes, well, pictures do not do this justice. This is just an incredible sight. So when you're, when you're uh, out and you see some of the, the glories of creation, it makes you feel kind of small and insignificant. And that's what the writer uh, in Psalm 8 is doing. He was looking at creation and he was amazed when he saw what God had created and specifically where he had placed humans in this awe-inspiring universe. He says, when, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Yet, you have crowned him with glory and honor. And he's amazed that God would show such supreme favor for mankind. Verse 6 says that God was mindful of him and cared for him. And then next, he, he was, uh, <clears throat> mankind was intended to be a, a creature with privilege, he says, only for a little while lower than the angels. And we saw in chapter 1 that angels serve God and humans. Angels are servants sent out for those whom God is, is helping. And we see furthermore that man was marked out initially as a creature of unrivaled dominion. When God created everything, he created uh, everything under the control of man. Everything, in verse 8, everything in subjection under his feet. You remember when God made everything, uh, in Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you see Adam and Eve in the garden, they're in perfection. They have uh, a perfect uh, place to live. They are in, have a perfectly harmonious relationship with God and enjoy his presence with them. And man was given a job of ruling over all creation. And creation was in harmony with this arrangement. It seems strange to us as I look at my front yard, at the uh, grass or the green stuff that's growing there that's not grass, these weeds that I did not plant there. And now did I invite them to come and join the grass there? It's a fight. It's a battle with creation that we're in now. And we don't see animals just submitting to us and, you know, being friendly to us. They're afraid of us, generally speaking. Um, and work in the Garden of Eden was a joy. I mean, it was perfect. There was no problems. There was no sin no other sinful people to deal with. Everything was in harmony and peace. 
everything lived in submission to man as the one with dominion. That's how God created the world, but something happened. And now we find ourselves in this predicament, in this world in which we live. You look at the last part of verse 8 there. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And here we have the understatement of the year so far. And that brings us to the second thing. What we don't see, what we don't see, we don't see what we were uh, supposed to see, what, how life was supposed to be, but we see something quite different. We see that we are in a predicament. We look around in our world and we see man despising God's favor, abusing his privileges, ignoring his dignity, and limited in his dominion. Now we just thought about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now think of mankind today. Man's tendency is to reject God's rule over us. You know, we, we run from fellowship with him. Like Adam and Eve, we hide from his presence. We keep him in a box until we want to pull him out for some divine intervention, but ignore him the rest of the time. And, and look at how we treat creation. We're, we're really at war with it, as I mentioned earlier. We fight with it to get it to produce what we want and need. It yields its fruit reluctantly. Animals run from us or run after us. If you watch the, I watched the Animal Planet one time and they had a show where they ranked the animals in order of how many human deaths they cause. What a morbid show. Uh, crocodiles, tigers, lions, and sharks. And, and I was astounded that thousands of people each year die from animal attacks. That's not the way I want to go. That would be very frightening and painful. So we abuse the earth, we exploit it, we waste its resources, and man is certainly not as he was created to be. Now when Psalm 8 was quoted here by the writer of Hebrews, he was looking back at Genesis 1. <clears throat> and, and here in the latter part of verse 8, where we see uh, everything is not yet as we should see it, the writer is thinking about Genesis 3 where the fall came into play. In Genesis 3, mankind had decided to buck the created order, so to speak. We were put over the earth, but we were under God as human beings. That's where they were in the Garden of Eden. They were over the earth, but under God. They were God's representatives to the earth. But in Genesis 3, mankind decided it wanted to be not only over the earth, but over God as well. Humans decided to be their own Lord and Master, and the result has been catastrophic. Trying to live apart from God made us unable to have dominion over anything. The world is all out of order. It's in chaos. We have pandemics now. We can't even control ourselves, much less the created order. And there's no justice, there's no control, nothing is the way it should be. There's war, hatred, injustice, natural disasters. It's just a big mess. But the worst thing that happened, according to our text, is in verse 14 and 15. And that, you think that's the bad news. 14 and 15 gives us the worst news. Namely, that we have death and slavery to the fear of death. 
We were not created to die. If Adam and Eve had remained in the Garden of Eden and obeyed God, they would still be there with everlasting life. But they decided to live apart from God, and death entered the picture. And no one likes to think about death. It's a fearful thing, and we su- suppress thinking about it, but death is inevitable. We just go back to our study of Ecclesiastes a few weeks and months ago. That was one of the things that he reminded us of over and over and over again, that our lives are, are brief. They are a vapor, a breath, and filled with vanity. And death comes to everyone. doesn't matter who you are. We're all going to die. Leo Tolstoy, <clears throat> his life changed because of that. You know, he was a great writer and so forth. He wrote a, a book about his own, his own uh, life called the, His Confession. And he said this, My question, that which, with, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. A question lying in the soul of every person. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was. What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my life? What is life for? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why hope for anything or do anything? Or it can also be expressed thus, does my life have any meaning that death cannot destroy? Not only do we live in a broken world, but we will die and eventually be forgotten. So few people, if you imagine the millions, billions of people that live on the earth, how many people will be remembered in history beyond uh, two or three generations? Most of us will be forgotten. And that's the human predicament. Thankfully, as Tolstoy found out, there is an answer. Jesus Christ has done something about it. He is Come to the rescue. And this brings us to the third thing, what we need to see. We need to see and consider what Jesus did about it. This is all very depressing. And we think about the difficulties that we face in life and how we can't overcome these difficulties and how discouraging that is and how it makes us want to give up like Tolstoy who said, you know, what's, life is not worth living. We need to look at Jesus, and that's what the writer of Hebrews does. He always points us to Jesus. Look at verse 9. But we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now this is uh, changing the way that we understand Psalm 8. And if you look at the New Testament, Psalm 8 is quoted numerous times. And in every, every time it is quoted, it is quoted as a messianic psalm. In my first point, I was pointing to the fact that this psalm originally was talking about mankind and mankind, you know, his place in creation. And the, the writer of the psalms is, is saying, wow, God, you know, you have given man uh, a great privilege of being in creation and giving him dominion. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, we don't see that. And the people to whom he was writing, were saying, we don't see this. We don't, we're not experiencing this, uh, this glorious 
life that the writer of Psalms is talking about. We have disease and sickness and brokenness in our lives. We have persecution. We're on the fringes of society. We're pushed to the edges and no one in the mainstream of society cares or wants to even tolerate Christians. And they were asking, was it worth it? But the writer of Hebrews and other New Testament writers has have taken Psalm 8 that was written about mankind and has applied it to Jesus, who was the perfect man, the perfect representative of mankind. Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 8 for mankind. Jesus came down as a representative of mankind. He took on human flesh so that he could do what Adam failed to do. He is referred to as the second Adam by Paul. The first Adam failed. He did not have dominion. He, he lost it. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, has come and regained it. He did not remain at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but he took on human flesh and he entered our predicament. B.F. Westcott in his commentary says this, the promise to man that is referred to there in Psalm 8, the promise to man has not, however, yet been realized. It is sure to him a dominion absolute and universal, and as yet he has no such dominion. But the words of the psalm have received a new fulfillment. The Son of God has assumed the nature in which man was created. In that nature, bearing its last sorrows, he has been crowned with glory. The fruit of his work is universal. In the Son of Man, Jesus, then, there is the assurance that man's sovereignty shall be gained. Thus the fact of man's obvious failure is contrasted with the accomplishment of Christ's work, which is the potential fulfillment of man's destiny. See, Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden, and he failed the test. He decided not to live under God's rule. And because he was our representative, the world is a mess and we are all now subject to death and are in bondage to the fear of death. And the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, the second Adam, came to earth as a representative and he did not fail. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. A propitiation is a sacrifice of atonement to, to, to be a mediator between God and man, to pay the penalty for sin so that God and man could reunite in fellowship with one another. And it tells us there that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. That's an interesting phrase and, and maybe a little difficult for us to understand the word perfect means complete or fulfilled. Jesus did not need to be made morally perfect. He was without sin and, and, and never did sin. But to be the perfect author or founder of salvation, he had to suffer. In other words, he did everything. He completely fulfilled everything that needed to be done in order to be the founder of salvation. In chapter 5, 
The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And that word learns mean he, he directed his mind toward obedience. He became accustomed to obedience through suffering. As Jesus lived his life and was faced with the sufferings of humanity, he navigated those sufferings perfectly without sin. He was obedient through suffering. You think about Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam stumbled when he did not suffer at all. He was in a perfect environment. He didn't have anything causing him to suffer in any way, and yet he failed. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he entered into our predicament. He entered into the brokenness of humanity. He put on human flesh and he walked through life suffering more and more and more as he lived, especially after he started his public ministry, ultimately to the cross. And he navigated and crossed every hurdle with obedience, perfect obedience, sinless See, if he only became a man and didn't suffer as a human, then he would not have gone all the way into entering our predicament. But he became the perfect Savior by suffering, by doing everything we needed him to do to save us. And there's another interesting word in verse 10. He's the founder or author of salvation. And it's, uh, that word has the nuance of leader or pioneer or captain. Jesus is the captain of salvation or the pioneer of salvation. He led the way into death and suffering and death. And what he did do when he got there, and what, you know, what did he do when he got there? As our captain, as our leader, he destroyed death. Death could not hold him. Death could not conquer him. He conquered death. He returned to life as our leader. And if we follow him, we may go into death, but he is our leader, our pioneer, our captain. We will follow him into everlasting life. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what frees us from fear and discouragement. Death is not to be feared by the Christian. And you know, it is a, kind of a scary thing to die, I'm sure. But we have a hope that undergirds that, that we can lean upon. And you see these people in to whom the writer of Hebrews is, is, is in sending this message of encouragement, they were facing death. They were facing being put to death for their faith. And he's encouraging them by, look at Jesus. See, verse 18, because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you discouraged today? Do you feel like giving up? Or you feel like, Sin has the upper hand and you look around at the world, are you discouraged by what you're seeing, the trends that are pulling us away from Christianity? That's what these people were. 
we're experiencing. The writer of Hebrews contends throughout this letter that fear and discouragement can be remedied by focusing in on Jesus. He says, look to Jesus, consider Jesus. He's our faithful high priest. He knows what we're going through. He's been there and he's navigated it for us. And he's walking with us. He is not ashamed, as it says here, to call us brothers. He's the captain of salvation. He's done everything for us. He has made the sacrifice necessary to ensure that all who put their trust in him will be restored to what they were created to be one day. We will know that dominion again in the new heavens and new earth. So to return to his question in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Don't neglect such a great salvation. Remember it. Think about it. Embrace it. Trust it. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for this encouraging message. Lord, as we ponder the mess that our world is in and the difficulty that we face in our lives, we thank you that we can look to you, captain of salvation, our, the pioneer of salvation, the leader, the, the high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, the one who has conquered death. Thank you, Lord, that you are not ashamed to call us your children. You've invited us into your family to have a relationship with you, to be in a covenant relationship with you, a, a, a bond that can never be broken. And so, Lord, you will pull us through. No one can snatch us from your hand, and we're so grateful for that. And I pray that for everyone who is discouraged today that they would look to you and put their faith and trust in you today. And we pray that you would help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.